We are going to be in Colossians chapter 3 today. Would you join me in, in praying for God's help in understanding this? Father, we ask this morning as we turn our eyes and our attention to this passage in your word, that you would protect us and guard our hearts from all of the, all the influences that can color the way we see these things. God, we all bring certain experiences and backgrounds and definitions. But God, this morning I pray that we would see what you have communicated in your word and that we would let you define these things, that we would trust in you, And to do that, God, we need to be able to think with the mind of Christ. We need to see with your eyes, and we need to have hearts that have been made alive by the Spirit to love what we find. So would you do that for us? In Jesus' name, amen. So we've been going through Colossians, and we get to this place, which is sometimes a difficult passage. I would say it's a difficult passage to deal with. These are the types of passages that we often, if we're not preaching through a book of the Bible, we you know, don't always want to talk about because there's so much incredible stuff that we all love in Colossians. We've been talking about the preeminence of Christ, how he is above all things, how he is sufficient for all wisdom and that he is um, sufficient for our understanding and our salvation. And he is just like, and then, and then as we are bought by him and renewed by him, we are to put off our old self. So even hard passages like two weeks ago, that I thought Jeff did a fantastic job dealing with, even passages like that, um, we can see the goodness there. Because then Robbie comes through with part two and we're like, okay, we're putting off all of these old things and then we get to put on these new things in Christ. So we get to live and think um, in, in new ways. And we get to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. So if you didn't listen to those last two messages, I really encourage you to do so. And, um, and so that then leads to this passage. They're not disconnected. And that's one of the things we have to understand. So my, my aim here is to frame this passage in the context of the book of Colossians and then to understand how do we actually read this and apply this to our lives in a way that is glorifying to Christ. So he says, starting in verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, the common objections that we typically raise in in our culture, in our day, in our churches, is that there are just some phrases in here that make us uncomfortable. Submission of wives to husbands. Bondservants obeying masters. 
And we, a lot of times in our culture as a whole, we're just uncomfortable. And ultimately, we're uncomfortable, I think, for a godly reason and for kind of an ungodly reason. Not kind of, but definitely an ungodly reason. So we got a godly reason to be uncomfortable with this and an ungodly one. The godly reason to be uncomfortable with this is because we see the brokenness of it all around us. So what Paul is dealing with, he's not just dealing with, he's going to talk about three specific relationships and systems But he's not only talking about those three. He's just picking those out. This could apply to all kinds of systems of of structure and authority. And one of the issues we have with it is the brokenness of it. Husbands who, who don't love like Christ. Bosses who don't lead like Christ. Politicians who don't serve like Christ. And so it bothers us when we look in this and we see in Scripture being called to submit in other places, Paul talks about submitting to the governing authorities. And we, we don't like that. because, And often we say, well, because it's so broken. And we're right. It is broken. And it's good for us to see that it's broken and to call out the brokenness. But it's not the way it was created to be. Richard Chin po- points out in his book on Colossians that What Paul is referring to here is the good order. And it's a theme that starts in chapter 1, but he explicitly, Paul explicitly states it in chapter 2, verse 5, when he says, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So your good order. What is that good order? Well, it's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it was good. In the beginning, he created Adam and Eve and their dynamic and their relationship to each other. And it was good. In the beginning, he created work systems as he gave Adam dominion over the creation to work it and to to take care of it. And it was good. He gave systems of authority there and they were good. These structures of authority and systems were created to be good, loving families, just systems. But it is broken. But we look at the brokenness and we tend to think that that brokenness is out there. And as we say a lot here, that the brokenness isn't out there, it starts in here. And we can look around and we can say, well, the problem in our system is, is, is the corruptness and the, the brokenness out there. And if everybody out there just functioned like we do, then everything would be fine. But that is not true. Let's take, let's take the political system and say that there's one thing that we can all be united in for sure. I don't think there's anybody that over the last several weeks hasn't looked at our political system and say, that is a mess. It is broken. Right? We look at things in there and we just say, this, this, is, this is broken. But we have to realize that the political system only exists as a reflection of us, a reflection of our culture. The reason politicians say and do the things that they say and do is because it is a reflection of the things that we want them to say and do. That's how they get elected. If you have a politician who doesn't say and do the things that people want them to say and do, they are a bad politician. They don't get elected to anything. And so when we point out there and we say, that's all broken, we have to realize it's a reflection of us as a culture. And it's easy to blame others. 
We tend to think that if everybody around us acted in a kingdom way, then we wouldn't have an issue, but it's not true. Because even when things are good, we don't like it. Like, all of us, I think, in here were children at one point, or currently are. If you remember, I'm pretty sure that it's a common experience. I remember as a kid getting into arguments with my parents, disobeying them, and arguing against them, even though I knew they were right. That's not all the time, but there were definitely times where I knew kids that are in here, your secret's out. I know that there are times where you're arguing and pushing, but you know deep down, they're actually right about this. So even when the person is just and right in what they're asking for, we don't like it. And we don't like it because we don't like submission because we want to be God. That's the ungodly reason why we have a problem with this passage. So the godly reason is it's broken and it's painful and we see how it's all been perverted and abused and so we rightly say that's wrong, that's broken. But the ungodly reason is we don't even want it in its good order because we want to be autonomous. We want to be God. It's the problem since the garden. So the order isn't the problem. The the, the solution is not to remove all authority and structures and systems as if that is the cause. The solution is for those things to be redeemed. And lucky for us, that's exactly what Jesus does. He redeems those orders and those systems by redeeming us. He redeems marriages and parenting and work relationships and social systems. He does so in the kingdom way, from the inside out. So he redeems marriages by redeeming the hearts of husbands and wives. He redeems parents and like households by redeeming the hearts of parents and children. He redeems social systems by redeeming the hearts of those that are involved. And when those things happen, when hearts are redeemed and transformed, then families and workplaces and communities are redeemed and transformed. And this section is a glimpse of that order. This section is a glimpse of the kingdom order, the good order, that this is how it is to function. If we are in Christ, then we are to live lives that are submitted to our king and his kingdom, believing that he is restoring all things. And that one day he will make all things right. So that kind of frames the conversation a little bit. But I do need to give like a really foundational truth here before I dive into how this is all tied together. Here's a key fundamental truth about this passage. This is not about equality. There are no issues of inequality in this passage. It's a, it's a distinctly American kind of idea or westernized idea, I would say, that authority means inequality. But we know it's not the case. You aren't less of a human being than your boss just because he or she can tell you what time to show up at work. Right? My children, my child's not less of a human being because I can ask them to clean their room. We know that's not the case. We know that there are good systems and good order that God has created. 
And of course, what should eliminate that for Christ followers, what should eliminate that completely, the world even can see that and say, well, that's not inequality. That's just good order. And that's the way that should be. But um, we should eliminate that completely for Christ followers because of what Paul says about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, meaning the Father, who put all things in in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That's a hard verse to say. But God subjects all things to Christ, and Christ subjects himself to the Father. And that same word that Paul uses is the same word that he uses for wives and husbands. It's a submit, a subjection. So whatever you think about people in those structures that are called to submit, you have to think about Jesus. It's carried over from Jesus Christ and the Father who are clearly equal. Additionally, to kind of further prove the point, Paul clearly assumes something really important here when he's addressing these different groups of people. Notice what he says to children, when he addresses children. Same in all three things, but especially he he specifically addresses children. Children, obey your parents. He doesn't say, parents, tell your children to obey. He doesn't say, he says to wives, wives, submit to your husbands. He doesn't say, husbands, tell your wives to submit. He says, bondservants, obey your masters. He doesn't say, masters, tell your bondservants to obey. Why? Because he's assuming they're all together. That's very important. They're all sitting together, one body under Christ, all one. No difference in equality or status in the church. That was groundbreaking. You wouldn't address these groups of people together as if they were sitting next to each other, And that they are equal in their responsibility and equal in their value and equal of instruction and equal of inheritance. That is unique. And it it speaks to the way Paul viewed people in these situations. He's saying, these are the structures. They are given by God, but they have been broken and perverted. And so how do we as a family, as equal brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we function in the midst of that in a way that is glorifying to Christ? That's what he's talking about. As he says in verse 25, there is no partiality. God does not see classes or wealth or color or anything. All are in Christ. So, How do we walk in this good order? We get a huge clue to how this all works. We have to remember that, again, this is one letter, right? So so Paul would expect that this was read to the church. Okay? So passages that for us are four or five weeks ago are like four or five minutes ago for them. And so this is all one letter. And so this is why, by the way, I encourage you to read through the book of Colossians over and over again as we're preaching through it so that you have a context for all of these things. And so here's the context. Like I said, it was explicitly stated in in chapter 2, verse 5 about this good order, but the foundation is laid in chapter 1. 
When Paul says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So that is the foundation that now Paul is talking about. He's saying now how all this plays out, and now he's going into specifics so like the last two weeks, so then because these things are all true, this is how, what you should put off. This is what you should put on. And then this is how you should function in these social systems and structures. All of these things have been created by him. Look, at it. it says whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all of these systems and structures that we talk about were created by Christ. Through him, they are redeemed. For him, they exist. And in him, they all hold together. That's the framework, the outline that we are to think about passages like this. So they're by Christ. They're given by Christ. That means he defines what these systems mean, what authority looks like. And the authority in each of these cases is limited. It's a a delegated or a derived authority, meaning meaning it all comes from Christ. So no human being has total authority over another. It all comes from Christ. What this means is even the most powerful person in the world is at best middle management. They can't even do their next action unless Christ gives them the breath to do it. Like If you've worked in any company at all, you know what middle management is like. Sometimes there's a lot of bark and sometimes there's a lot of like threats or whatever. But at the end of the day, they can only do what people above them tell them they can do. And that is the most powerful person on our planet is that. That means husbands are not autonomous. They are under Christ. Parents are not autonomous. They are under Christ. Employers are not autonomous. They are under Christ. Kings and presidents and politicians are not autonomous. They are under Christ. And they will give an account. Verse 25, For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. That should cause all of us who are in any position of authority or power to pause and give consideration. How you handle that, how you handle the position that you have been given will be held to account. You will have to give an account to the one who has real authority. Those systems are created by Christ as a good gift and it is to Christ we'll be accountable in how we steward it. So if you find yourself in a place of authority or power, whether it's in your workplace or in our culture or in the socioeconomic status or in your family, understand that, there, that Christ has given you that and we're going to show why he gave you that and it matters and you will be held accountable for it. So it's by him. It's through him that it's redeemed. It's through him that we see how these broken systems and broken ideas on submission and leadership can can actually be redeemed and made right. And one of the ways we do that is by looking at the life of Jesus. And if we want to know how does Jesus redeem um, authority in our culture, by looking at the way he handles authority. How does Jesus redeem our ideas about submission? By looking 
at how he submits. So what I want to do is look at two passages back to back, one about Jesus and his authority and one about Jesus and his submission. I want to see if you can, if you can see what's in common between these two. In Matthew 20, Jesus speaks about authority. He says, Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now look at what Paul says in Philippians 2 about Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Do you see the similarities there? He says, you want to be a great leader? You want to have authority the way God calls you to have authority? Become a servant. And then, you want to know what it looks like to submit? Look at Jesus who came down and lowered himself, born in in human form, submitted himself to the will of the Father, submitted him, the creator, submitting himself to creation, and became obedient even to the point of death on, a de- death on a cross. You want to know what that looks like? He became a servant. Taking the form of a servant. You want to be a great leader? Serve. You want to know how to submit? Serve. It's the same instructions. You don't look nearly as excited about that as me. Do you see how the world will look at these things and they'll say, well, that's your role and that's your role. These are completely different things. But the Bible looks at it and says, no, it's actually the same thing. You become a servant. It is through him that we are redeemed, that we see how, whether we lead or whether we follow, whatever we do, We are servants of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's for Christ. It's for Christ. That's our aim. So it's created by him. It's defined by him. It's through him that it's redeemed. It's for him that we exist and that we serve and that we look and we live in these systems. That's our aim. Ultimately, all that is done is, is done not because of the worthiness of the person, the other the people in the system, but the worthiness of Christ. It's all for him. That means a couple of really important things. One thing it clearly means is that our service in that and our living in that and our glorifying Christ in it is not conditioned on the other person's behavior. Look at what he's talking about. Our, when I am functioning in this system, My role has been given by Christ, defined by Christ. I function through Christ and how he redeems it. And it's all for Christ. Where does my wife come into that picture? Where does how she functions come into that picture? It doesn't. She doesn't. 
Now, the way she functions in that is a blessing. It can be a gift. It's meant to be enjoyed. It can be this beautiful picture. But it's not the source. That's why it doesn't depend. My love for my wife and my service of her doesn't depend on how she is functioning in that relationship. Because I do all of that as an overflow of what Christ has done in me, not in what she has given me. She's not the source of it. The source of our love for others is God's love for us. That's how we can love our enemies. That's how we can pray for those who persecute us. That's how we can respond with kindness and gentleness. Because the source isn't other people, it is God. And yes, what we receive and the way it's supposed to work is that it's a mutual blessing and it is a gift, but it is not the source and it is not the aim. I don't love my wife so that she will love me. I love her because Christ has loved me. I don't love and serve the people who work for our church or the people in our church so that they will love me. I do that because Christ has loved me. Now, it's a gift to be loved back. It is a blessing, but it is not the source and it is not the aim. Okay, I got to move on. For Christ, that was our aim. In Christ is our power and our assurance. So as we pursue in Christ, we pursue and walk, and we see how Jesus redeems this, we have to walk it in a power that has not come from us. Because we do depend on how other people react. We do struggle with that. It is hard to work at a job when your boss is unfair and treating you unfairly. In our own strength, we can't do it. But in Christ, all things are held together. He is our power. And he is our assurance that one day things will be made right. So he's, he's in, our, in our power or in his power, we walk in this. And when we do that, we make it a joy for those around us. Like there's this interesting dynamic throughout scripture that when you have these systems where there's authority in play, that a picture is given that both parties should function in a way where they are each serving one another in a way that it brings joy. Where it is a joy to be in the position of authority and it is a joy to be in the place of submission. That's the kingdom picture. And when it doesn't look like that, it is broken by sin. But I'll give you an example. In 1 Peter 5, Peter is giving instructions to the elders. And he says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So he's saying, do it with joy. Do it eagerly, telling the elders of the church. And this is what he says to Uh, The writer of Hebrews says to the people in the church, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There's that again. Have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So there are these pictures of both mutually submitting and serving one another in a way that is joyful for everyone. That is a picture of the good order. Those in authority seeking to serve those who who they lead, giving away their power, giving away those seeking to become lower and taking the lower seat and serving and loving. And those who are being led, making it a joy to serve. I mean, imagine going to work every day knowing that Your boss, who's in authority over you, cares for you 
and wants the best for you and wants to see you flourish and will serve you to make that happen. How much of a joy is it to work in that place? Or imagine leading people. Maybe you're in authority over people at work. And imagine leading people who just want to make the whole thing work and they just want to serve and they just, want, they just love the team and they love people around them and they just want to make everything better. Like how much of a joy is it to lead people like that? That is the picture of the good order. And so really briefly, I just want to, that was the big part. But I do want to give honor to what he's saying here in these specific relationships. So then that's the framework when he says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So we think of it through this framework of by Christ. He defines it. This is really important here because in this, when he says submit, wives, submit to your husband, that word submit, that's the passive form of that word, not the active. What's the difference? Glad you asked. The active word of submit is when the person in authority can subject another person to submission, to submit to their authority. That's active. That word is only applied ever to God. What that means is God is the only one who can subject other people under his rule. Human beings can't do that. This is passive, which means it is voluntary, which means what Paul's instructing, he is telling wives, look, your husband can't subject you. You voluntarily submit. And what does he mean by that? Well, it means that no husband can subject his wife to his authority. That no husband can declare that or force their wife to be subject to their authority. That's critical. It's also critical that it does not mean obey. And I know that I'm going to get emails. I'm pretty sure I'm going to get emails about this. So let me just preface this by saying, if you would like to send me an email disagreeing with me about this, that is fine. I highly recommend that you use a lot of scripture to demonstrate your point. Because Paul is very clear in this both here and in Ephesians 5, where wives are to submit, children obey. And then he talks about bond servants obeying. Wives don't obey. He uses the exact same words here as he does in Ephesians 5. Submit, obey, obey. Same pattern. Submit, obey, obey. Submission here does not mean obey. It simply means to respect and submit yourself under the protection and care of your husband. It's actually a place of flourishing. It, Paul uses it in another place where he talks about a mothering hen. Talking about that, it's the same type of imagery. So as a mother hen kind of gathers her chicks and provides shelter and cover for them. That's what submission is, and we have perverted that in our culture. He defines it. And it's through him and for him. So what that means, and under that picture, wives submit under that care. Likewise, do likewise as Jesus has done, as is fitting in the Lord. So if it's honoring to Christ, that is a beautiful picture. And if it's not, then that's not what he's talking about. And your aim in submission is not to glorify your husband, but to glorify Christ. You don't submit to your husband because he is worthy, but because Christ is worthy. That's the picture he's giving here. And when it is done in the kingdom order, it is a beautiful thing. It is a wonderful place to be. And husbands, 
He shows you what your leadership is to look like, to serve and to cover and to protect and to give one's very own life. And husbands are to do likewise. Husbands, this is not about making decisions about things to buy or places even to move or anything like that. This is about serving, about providing cover and protection so that your wife can flourish. That's what it's for. Your aim should be to glorify Christ by making submission a joy for your wife, for the glory of Christ. And in him, all things hold together, even in things that are hard or relationships that are hard. In him, all things hold together. Even this beautiful picture that in Christ, husbands and wives are both made his bride. Isn't that cool? These systems that he takes here, when he makes them full in his glory, we are both in the same place with Christ. Okay, fathers and children. Created by God. Structure. So the scope of this is limited. It's delegated. It's, it's derived. And so what he's talking about here is to young children. This is an important piece of this. These children would have been clearly old enough to understand, but not yet responsible for themselves. So one thing is clear. He is not talking to adult children. When children grow up, the relationship dynamic changes. He is talking about children who are under the care and authority of their parents while they are growing up to adulthood. Once they are in adulthood, this no longer applies. And this is critical in our culture where sometimes we have parents of, a grown, of grown children still expecting obedience. Paul is not saying that. That is, that is an ungodly form. That is a perversion of this. But in that scope, in that, in that covering, when you're under that authority, under that covering, he says, children, obey your parents. Why? To make mom and dad's life easier. No, that's not what he says. Because it is pleasing to the Lord. Your king. Here's the thing. Every child thinks their parent is wrong from time to time. I think that's fair. Here's the secret. Sometimes you're right. You may even be right more than you think. You're certainly right more than your parents think, but that's a different issue. But that's not the issue. The question is, who is your Lord? You obey your parents because you belong to the Lord and it is pleasing to him, not because they're always right. Now, if they ask you to do something that is unbiblical or ungodly, then come and talk to me. We are safe and we will talk to you and we will listen to you. But in other things, obey your parents. Parents, do not provoke your children for you are stewards of them. They, they have a king and it's not you. They belong to him, not you. They are not an extension of your identity. They are not a way for you to prove your value or your worth. They are image bearers created in the image of God and wired and loved by him and called to himself to be redeemed and adopted and equal heirs in the kingdom. So be good stewards. Don't provoke them. It's discouraging. Don't make them anger, angry and discouraged. Make it a joy for them to obey you. Know the word. Be transformed by the gospel. Be kind. Be patient. Repent in front of them. 
Let them see you love and follow Jesus. It doesn't guarantee obedience, but you're doing all you can to make it a joy for them. To remove the stumbling blocks that we as parents and myself specifically are so often guilty of placing in front of them. And then let them go. And one day all those things will be made right. And the last one that he gives that I'll have to kind of do quickly is it's actually one of the more challenging ones to pick apart, but not really if you understand the context of what he's talking about. He talks about bondservants and masters. And it's easy to say like, okay, well, that's about slavery and that we no longer do that here and it exists in other parts of the world. So, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't apply to us anymore. That's not really what's going on here. What Paul is really addressing here, I think, is the system of, of work and economy and politics. Now, before you think that's a stretch, keep in mind that bond servants at this time were typically prisoners of war or of debt. So all these issues are tied up in this relationship. You were, you were a bond servant because you owed money that you couldn't pay back, or you're a bond servant because you are a part of a country that has been captured and you've been taken as a prisoner of war. Either way, you're in a bad position. You are oppressed, you have no power, you have no voice, and you have no future. And what does Paul say to them? Listen. It gets uncomfortable, but if you listen, you'll hear incredible things. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Listen to what Paul is saying to the oppressed. He's saying, the system is broken. But you look at me. You trust me. I'm watching you work for me. Don't do anything for them. They can't, they can't offer you anything. Don't just do things to please them and try to get into their good graces. They can do nothing for you. But what I have for you, look what he says. Verse 24, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. He's addressing bondservants and slaves sitting right next to their masters and saying, look at me. If you look to Christ and you work for Christ and you see your position as coming from Christ and you work for him, he will give you an inheritance. You are co-heirs with all of these people around you. They may see you as less, but Christ does not. There is no partiality. You will have a reward. That's something that they would not have heard. And then he doesn't stop there. Look what he says in verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. He's not only promising reward and meaning and purpose in the road that you're walking, but he's promising justice. He's saying, one day, every person in power will be called to give an account for how they stewarded it. And if you've been treated unfairly, it will be held to account. But you fix your eyes on Christ. 
They are promised inheritance and reward and justice, and there is no partiality. And then he says, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Think about what he's saying here. This is all from Christ, and through him it is redeemed, and for him I live, not for them, but for Christ. And it's in Christ all things hold together, because in Christ slaves have freedom and masters have a master. This is incredible. The world tries to fix it in their own strength, but Christ says, I redeem this. This was created by me and for me, and through me it will be redeemed. And in me, Christ says, the bondservants are free and the masters have a master. So make it a joy. Become a servant, whether you are an authority or not, and make it a joy. And as a church, we are to work toward this and to support this kind of renewal. This is why politics matter in the church. It's why family structure and strength matters in the church. It's why justice in our social systems matter in the church, because it matters in the kingdom. And we are called to be a city on a hill. That means when people read the gospel or read, hear the good news of Jesus, that part of what's going on is they're saying, well, huh, what does that look like when it's lived out? And we point to the church. And to our shame, we don't always look like that. But in Christ, we can. And people can look and they can say, ah, that's okay, that's what you're talking about. That's what justice looks like. That's what submission looks like. That's what joy looks like. That's what parenting looks like. And we know it's broken. We shouldn't be surprised. But our job as a church is to work towards that and to help you with that. And so we resource this in all ways. If you're struggling in your marriage, we will give you counseling. We do marriage counseling. We'll sit with you. It's why Donna and Christoph are, are not just responsible for children and youth, but whole families because they take it. their main job is to equip parents to disciple your kids, not to put on programs. We want you to be the disciple makers of your kids. We're here to help you. If you're struggling in the workplace with any kind of dynamic or relationship, then we're here to help you. And when these things utterly fail, the church should be there to bring the kingdom. And so women and children who are abused should be cared for and protected and given shelter. And let me make this really clear. Whether you're watching online or you're here, one of the reasons why people who are abused whether it's in a marriage or in a home or in a workplace or in a social um, system, one of the big reasons why they don't speak up is because they don't think anyone will believe them. I want to tell you that we will believe you. We will listen to you. We will give you shelter. This church has been doing that for a long time and will continue to do it until Jesus returns. Because when it is broken to that level, the church must step in and give shelter and refuge for the abused and the abandoned, to give children who have been abandoned or neglected a home, to give those that don't have a job what they need to be cared for, to give those without a home shelter, to give those who are without justice, justice. And in doing all of that, we do so not for the approval of men, but for Christ. Because by him, all these things were created. And through him, all these things are redeemed. 
And for him, we live and walk. And one day he will make everything right. He holds all things together. He shows no partiality. So if you are in Christ, then pursue the kingdom. Live as God has called you for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we desperately need you to renew our minds and to cast off all of the things that the culture says to us. Either, either the things that the culture uses to pervert what authority looks like and to turn it into oppression and dominance, but also to resist the, the instinct to then try to do away with all of it, which is just code for, I just want to be autonomous and be my own God. But as so often the case, Lord, you give the third way. The gospel is the third way to recognize that all of these things have been created by you, for you, and redeemed through you. Glory goes to you, and it is in you all things hold together. So, to help us to consider that in all of our positions and how we function in our world. What does it look like to be completely submitted to you, our true authority, our true Lord, our true King? 